Well, good morning, everyone. The view from out here is just amazing. Um, this is wonderful. I'm so thrilled to be here this morning. And if you are a first-time visitor at the Vintage Church, uh, welcome. I um, think it's not a coincidence that you're here, and you may just have found what you're looking for, I think. Welcome. Um, okay. So just to begin with, I think I'll just say a couple of words about myself. Thank you very much for Pastor Ben for introducing me. As Ben said, um, I'm a professor at UCLA. I study mostly space physics. And uh, when you think about space physics, think about things like, how does the space environment around the Earth impact us? Um, how do we um, interact with things that happen on the sun? One of those examples is the Northern Lights. And here you'll see a picture. This is. A picture of um, the aurora borealis, or the northern lights, is something that we study fairly often. This picture was actually taken only about two weeks ago. This was over Mammoth Lakes in California. This one in particular reached all the way down to San Diego. Uh, if you know how auroras work, typically they're seen in very northern countries like Canada, Norway, Sweden, Finland. But when things get very energetic on the sun, uh, the auroras can get all the way down south. They can even cross across the United States. And so this picture was seen here, and I was actually interviewed for a local uh, TV station to ask if, is this going to be bad? Is this the end of the world? How's it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Uh, it's actually a very beautiful display, and it reminds us that we are all travelers on a spaceship called Spaceship Earth. We're traveling through space. We're actually all together in this. We are um, one of the most uniform species alive right now. The most uh, different people on the Earth are still 99.9% .9 the same, if you can believe that. It's kind of one of the wonders uh, that we have. As uh, Ben mentioned, I'm actually Jewish by background. I was born in Israel, but I've become a Christian about 23 years ago in a church not too different from this one. It has been a thrill ever since. There's always a question, as Ben mentioned, um, about this apparent conflict between science and faith. How can you believe in faith and still be a, um, you know, a scientist? And I'd like to contend that I think that this difference has been a little bit inflated. I think it's exaggerated sometimes you know, for, for profit or for drama or whatever. The, um, the link between science and faith has actually always been very strong. Some of the earliest scientists around have actually been uh, monks, Benedictine, Franciscan, Jesuit monks. They've done some of the very early experiments in their backyards and in their labs. And some of the most famous scientists that we know about, like Isaac Newton, Galileo Galilei, James Maxwell, many others, have actually been very devoted Christians. In fact, Isaac Newton wrote more about his Christian faith than he ever did about science. He thought deeply about these things. In the Middle Ages, science was actually called natural philosophy. This is why we still get our PhD, our Doctor of Philosophy, because it was seen as part of natural philosophy under the general philosophy, which is called theology. It was very well integrated because these are just, science and faith are just two different ways of looking for truth, right? Faith asks the why questions, science asks the how questions. You know, how is the world formed? What are the mechanisms? What are the processes? Faith asks the why questions. Why did this happen? Why did the universe come into existence in a flash, in a blink of an eye? All of time and space were created in an instant. 
right? Why is it that we are all related? We all have a common ancestor called genetic Eve. We do. This is just science, and um, as described in the Bible, right? Why? Why is there such a thing? There's this famous quote. Uh, maybe it can be put up by Werner Heisenberg. He says, uh, "It's like this: the first gulp from the glass of natural science will make you an atheist." Right, shallow understanding will lead you to think that we understand everything, our, um, our science, our mechanisms, our theory can describe everything, but at the bottom of the glass is God waiting for you. When you get deep, when you really understand, when you really start to probe and get down, you find the wonder. It's not as simple and straightforward. The wonder is there. And so I want to encourage you in that way. So I'm interested in space physics. I'm interested in AI, as you all might have recently seen headlines about ChatGPT. I'm interested in all kinds of science. My favorite is actually when the science world has something to say. There's some overlap between our faith. Now, a lot of the faith questions are not accessible by science. The why questions cannot be answered by the scientific method. But some of the things that Jesus said, you can actually test those. One of my favorite experiments ever that I'd love to tell you about was called the Harvard Study for Healthy Aging. Uh, do you guys know this experiment? Has anybody heard of this? You might have seen this famous TED talk. Uh, here's um, Robert Waldinger. He's the fourth director of the Harvard Study, and uh, this study started in 1938. The aim of the study was simple, but it was revolutionary at the time. They asked. What is it that makes for a good life? What is it that makes for a good life? Up until that point, psychology was concerned with abnormal psychology. So, if you came in and you had schizophrenia, or if you had all kinds of abnormalities, we wanted to just kind of bring you up to the norm. But what if the norm was just the norm? What if you wanted the good life? What if you wanted to go way above and beyond? And so they said, "Why don't we study this? We can actually study this." So they gathered up a group of about 300 Harvard freshmen. And、uh, they took a, a comparison. They gathered a group of about 600 Boston street kids, mostly very poor, mostly come from broken homes, living in tenements, usually no running hot and cold water. And they followed these kids from 1938 all the way to the present time. There were hundreds of kids to begin with, then their wives, then their kids, now their grandkids, through generations, decades and decades, with a simple question of: If you had to look at a person in their 40s. Could you identify the specific factor or factors that would determine their longevity, how happy, and how healthy they would be when they're 80 years old? So that's just science. Measure everything about them. Give them questionnaires every year. Ask them about every possible thing you can. Measure their blood pressure, cholesterol, exercise, their income, their religion, their faith, everything you can think of. And we have an answer. Does anybody know, or can anybody venture a guess? What is the number one factor that predicts health, happiness, longevity? Happiness. That's good. Love. Connection. No one's saying money. <laughs> okay. In survey after survey of young kids who are finishing high school, they say, "What is the number one thing that you wish for? What is the one thing that you want?" They all say, "Money." Year after year, the next thing is fame. When you do the science, the number one factor is the strength and quality of your relationships. It's your relationships. Today we're going to be talking about relationships. 
we're going to be talking about a special kind of relationship that arises in Ephesians 2. It's the conflict in the early church between Jews and Gentiles. It's the ins and the outs. It's the citizens versus the exiles. How does the early church deal with this conflict? And what does it have to say to us here today, 2,000 years later? So let's have our reading. Okay, this is Ephesians 2 from verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has been made the two groups, one and has, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For, though, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so it's a mouthful, but we're going to break it down. So I think it's very helpful at this stage to just kind of pause and get a little bit of context. You know, you can translate language, and this was written in the Greek uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, but it's very hard to translate the context. Where is this being written? How is this being written? Why is it being written? So let's do a little bit of teaching. So this letter was written by the Apostle Paul in the years about 61 to 63 AD. At this time, Paul is actually under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting trial. He's not a prisoner, but he is waiting and he's being kept in house arrest. Uh, he's uh, in Rome. We know where he is. This is kind of a Jewish section uh, of Rome by the Tiber River where there's a lot of cloth makers. We know this from archaeology. He's not allowed to come and go freely. He's awaiting trial, but he's allowed to receive visitors. And so as he's sitting at home, uh, very much like this, you see his uh, light chained to his Roman guard. He is receiving visitors, and he's receiving word for some of the churches that he's planted. One of those churches is a church in the city of Ephesus. Uh, now, Ephesus is kind of, a, at this time, a very cosmopolitan city. It's a port city. It's uh, very diverse. It has amphitheaters. It has um, temples to the goddess Artemis, I believe, and various other things. It's, it's coming and going. Right now, it's a, it's a small village called Selkuk. It's in western Turkey. But at that time, it was kind of like described the Paris of the Middle East. And so uh, he's receiving word from this church that there are divisions 
that arise. Specifically, there are divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right? And so it's up to Paul to kind of say something about this. So let's just talk a little bit about why is there this division. The first thing to understand is that in the years 60, 61, 62, 63, the church is mostly composed of Jews. The word Christian wasn't going to become, come into popular use until about 100 AD. At this stage, all the Christians are viewed as a sect of Judaism, right? There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and then there were the Nazarenes, also called the Way. And so, these Jews are now believing the three to 400 prophecies in the Old Testament. They believe that the promised Messiah has come, right? Messiah in Hebrew is translated to the promised one, in the Greek, it's translated to Christos, from which we get Christ. Right? So for, for those who are kind of new to this, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means the Messiah, the chosen one. And so um, he's receiving word of this conflict. The early Christians, the believers, the Jews, are still seeing themselves as Jews, and the promised Messiah has come. And so they maintain their cultures, their customs, their ways, their laws. But something is changing. There's kind of a big change afoot. And... Um, in the church right now, the Gentiles are being allowed in for the first time, and this is a very difficult thing. It's a difficult thing. The church is a little bit confused. They're looking to Paul for guidance, and the Jews are saying that for Gentiles coming in, they should obey the laws and the customs and the rules and the regulations. Now, why is it that there's such a problem between Jews and Gentiles? Is there an actual reason for this? If you look back to De Deuteronomy, um, here the Lord says very early on, he says, you shall not intermarry with them, this is Jews and Gentiles, giving your daughters to, or to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So keep separate. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn, burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I should mention quickly that the word holy as used here is just set aside. Right? It's chosen. It's not because they're, they're better or more holy or not, not better than anyone else. It's because they're simply set aside. Out of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will come the promised Messiah. That's why they're set aside. They are to keep their religion, their custom, their laws, all the stories that the Lord has done. Don't mix with the foreign nations because you will dilute this. So they're very, very careful. For thousands of years, they're maintaining this kind of separation. And now Paul is saying, things are changing. The point is that they have a good reason. They have a good reason to be fearful, to be separate. They're not right but they have a good reason, and they're fearful. So the Gentiles are feeling like second-class citizens. They're coming into the church. They don't know what to do. They want to follow the promised Messiah. It is now open to them. And they're kind of confused. Should we follow the law? Should we not? And Paul's addressing this. I want to just turn our attention for a minute to a character we don't often hear about, and that is the guard. What does the guard have anything to do with this? Here's the guard. He's chained to Paul by the ankle. It is his responsibility to make sure that Paul shows up uh, for his hearing with Emperor Nero at the promised time and place. Otherwise, the guard will actually lose his life. 
And so Paul and his God are chained together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The God is talking to Paul. Paul is talking to the God. They're exchanging stories. They're trying to understand each other. They're literally together every single moment of the day and night. So as the God is sharing his background, his story, where he comes from, Paul is sharing his religion, and here Paul says, you know, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace God, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Paul is telling this God about the good news of Christ. The whole palace God is tuning and they're hearing about Jesus. But who is this God and what does he have to do with our story? Well, it may surprise you to know that in the Roman Empire, it is not the best and brightest elite fighting force that get chained to prisoners who are awaiting their trial. This is a mundane, boring, terrible job. And who gets this job? Well, here we have to turn to a little bit of Roman history. Um, the Romans, when they conquered a new city, they would surround it. They would give the people the option to either you know, die or surrender. And if the people chose to surrender, they would now be a part of the Roman Empire, and they would undergo this process, which is called civitas or civitas. We get the name, um, the, the word civilization out of it. Uh, right? Civic refers to city. What city are we talking about? It's Rome. So this is a process of Romanization. So how does this work? Well, the first thing is you surrender. You are in a new kingdom called the Roman Empire. Now, by law, when you enter the new kingdom, you have to be chosen and adopted by a clan or a family. So part one, you surrender. You're in a new kingdom. Part two, you're chosen and adopted. You're given a new Roman name. You're now part of a clan. Number three, as part of the law, if you're part of a clan or a family, by law you have a piece of land that belongs to your clan. You get an inheritance. And in fact, you get this um, chip or a token that soldiers used to attach to their shield or their belt to kind of say which piece of land belongs to me, just in case they, had, they died in battle. So they are part of a new kingdom. They're chosen. They're given a new name. They're adopted by a new family. And by the way, adoption gets kind of a bad rap these days. Adoption in the Roman Empire meant preference. By Roman law, if you are adopted, you are first in line. You're given preference. Um, the fellow that Paul is waiting to see, Emperor Nero, was actually adopted by Emperor Claudius. When Claudius died, Nero became the new emperor because he was first in line. Adoption, as Paul refers many times to his letters, adoption to sonship means you're first in line. You get preference. You were chosen. So you're chosen. You're adopted. You're given an inheritance. And then what happens? You walk. You walk. And you're taught to walk like a Roman. You walk. You're taught, how do you behave in a Roman bath? How does Roman culture work? How do men and women relate to each other? How do slaves and free? You walk and you walk and you walk. And what the guard is doing here, when soldiers are captured by the Roman army, they are put into the lowest, most terrible, most horrible, boring positions, and they rise up the ranks, and this is what the soldier here, he's a foreigner, he's an exile, he's talking to Paul about his home, he's talking to Paul about being treated like a second-class citizen in Rome while he's walking, and he's learning the Roman ways, and at the end of the civitas process, the soldiers are reinstated to their former rank, they get their weapons, and what is happening in the book of Ephesians is a mirror 
of this process. In Ephesians 6, we learn about the weapons of God, and these are selected very, very carefully out of the whole armory of Roman weapons to express exactly what kind of battle, how do we fight, what tools do we have. This, uh, this letter that is written to the Ephesians is beautifully thought out. It is kind of one of the most coolest things of Scripture is just how much thought and depth and meaning goes into this. Right? This letter is a general teaching. It's a circular letter to many churches teaching on common themes, but it is specialized to Ephesians for the particular thing that they're going through. So Paul's letter mirrors this induction process. He's writing to Gentiles entering the Christian church, and he's writing to people who are very familiar with the Civitas process so they can understand exactly how it works. So he relates to something very familiar with them. Let me read you a passage out of Ephesians 2 that shows you how this is mirrored to people who are coming into the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2 verse 11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose, and here's the crux of this, his purpose was to create in himself a new humanity, a new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Don't miss what's going on here. This is dramatic. This is a change. This changes everything. Paul is saying, we're creating now a new humanity. What is happening is, there is a bending of the relational arc that started in Genesis, in the Old Testament. The relational arc has been separate, and now the relational arc is being brought back together again. Let me tell you a little bit about this. In Genesis 1 and 2, what is described the fall of man, a separation between man and God. The most tragic words you'll ever read in the Bible are, Adam, where are you? Where are you? I'm not connected to you anymore. There's a separation between men and women. They're no longer partners. They are now, you know, living in, kind of in this power dynamic. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. There's no longer community. There's no longer connection. There's just brokenness happening all over the place. And now the new humanity is bending this ark back. The Revelation picture, by the way, written by John the Elder, who was from Ephesus, uh, says, here's what the new humanity looks like. Here's where you're going, okay? After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, Every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus, of course. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They were all different. They were not uniform, but they were unified. They didn't all look like the Hollywood picture of, you know, tall, handsome, blue-eyed, good-looking, flowing blonde hair. Thank goodness I'd be in big trouble because I don't have blue eyes, obviously. Everything else is fine. (laughs) 
they were all different, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's the biblical picture. That's the picture of God. In Genesis 15, we have this picture of the Tower of Babel, right, due to the arrogance of man. Mankind is split into different languages. Now they can't even relate to each other. They can't even speak to one another. Their languages are all different. They don't understand. And in Acts 2, in the Pentecost picture, there is this beautiful picture where people come from all nations and tribes. They're all speaking different languages. And the Holy Spirit goes, whoosh, and suddenly everyone understands each other. And they're writing this thing where I don't get what's happening. Everyone here is different. They're speaking different languages that I don't know, yet I understand them. It's the creation. It's the beginning of the new humanity. It's the bending of the ark, the relational ark of mankind. And that's God's vision for us. That's the new humanity. So, why the church? What does this picture have to do with us right now? I would like to contend that the church is a most unique institution for birthing, for modeling, and for housing the new humanity. Right? Where else do you mix with every kind of person, every race, every tribe, every nation, every language? Only here can you be not uniform, but unified. You're all different, right? Where else can you practice the one another's? Did you know that there are 59 one another's in the Bible? Love one another, encourage one another, support one another, bear with one another, everything with one another. You cannot do the solo. You cannot do the solo. We need relationships to keep us happy, healthy, and growing and housing Jesus. So how are we doing with this? Well, I'm so thrilled when I look around this church to just kind of see just a glimpse, a glimpse of the multitude in Revelations, but we're not there yet. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. uh, in a famous interview in 1960 said that tragically the most segregated hour of Christian America happens to be at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Somehow we still find a way to just kind of be separate. You know, we're, we're getting there, but we're not there. We're just kind of trying, but not quite. We have work to do. Why is that? C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters, he says, humans are kind of like two things. We're kind of like amphibians. We're half animal and half spirit. Our animal selves are territorial. They're jealous. They're tribal. They're, you know, they're angry. They're fearful. Our spirit selves long for more. We know that there's more. We feel it. We strive for it. And there's this, this battle, this duality. Paul writes in one of his letters that even though my, my outer animal self is wearing down, it's wearing away, it's decaying, it's going to die. My spirit self is being renewed. I'm just getting better. I'm feeling more and more alive with every passing year. And I contend that it's the church's role to lead this new humanity as opposed to some HR department or what Hollywood tells us that our morals should be. Okay, so to conclude, let me tell you about three possible ideas that I have. How could we do this? What are some practical steps that we could take? So, big idea number one for creating the new humanity is what we call radical curiosity. Right? This is something you'll hear in the world, and I think it's a fabulous idea, and it's consistent with the gospel. What is radical curiosity? Radical curiosity is undoing the isms. You know what I mean? What are the isms? Sexism, racism, anyone got any more? 
anti-classism, anti-Semitism, the isms. And what are isms at their heart? Isms are, I will tell you who you are. I'm going to assume who you are. I know who you are. That's the ism. The counter to the ism is radical curiosity. Tell me who you are. Tell me what life looks like from your perspective. We cannot do radical curiosity solo. And thank God, by definition, we can only see the world from just one perspective. What we want is you want many perspectives. Developing compassion means seeing the world through the other person's eyes. You know, this is not colorblindness. It is just radical curiosity. It's honoring and acknowledging that there are differences, and that's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. We need that for a broader and bigger understanding of the world. Radical curiosity. Number two is forgiveness. Why forgiveness? I've got to tell you, when I, um, when I was a child, we moved from Israel to South Africa. I was 10 years old. I got to see uh, the horrors of apartheid in South Africa, the segregated system, what it did to individuals, what it did to families, what it did to kids down the line from that. But I also got to see, in 1990, the release of Nelson Mandela from jail, the first democratic elections in 1994. And the most amazing thing, in 1995, South Africa had this thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This was led by the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It was... Um, led by a man of faith, and it was like a national purging. It was a national period of confession and forgiveness. I don't have a right to ask anyone to forgive anything, and this is an area where I myself have struggled. But Jesus made a pretty big deal out of it. Jesus said to forgive, to, uh, ask God to forgive our trespasses the way we forgive those that trespass against us. Right? Our forgiveness is linked directly to how we forgive others. So I'd like to ask, is there someone here that you need to forgive today? Do you need forgiveness today? There is nothing more powerful than having a Christian brother or sister hear your story and tell you that you're forgiven by the authority of Jesus. You can't do this alone. They've recently done a study. Can self-love really help us? Can self-forgiveness help us? No, it's fake. You cannot do this alone. It requires community. It requires relationship. Uh, the final thing that I'd like to share is um, what I call the seven words. And my seven words will revolutionize your faith, transform the world, and revitalize the church. The third big idea, right? Sounds pretty good. All right, what are the seven words? The seven words are, may I pray for you right now. May I pray for you right now? Can I tell you a little story before we close? Uh, I was living in New Jersey a few years ago, and I needed to get to the airport, so I called a lift, the airport being JFK. I called a lift, and uh, the driver came, and in the hour that it took us to get to JFK, he told me his story. He basically said that he was born with a genetic illness. His skin was actually much lighter than his family. All his siblings and his family were actually... There were refugees from another country. They were dark-skinned. He was very light-skinned. As part of that, he had chronic inflammation in all of his joints. He was in pain all the time. He told me that he came from a background. His family was half Islam, half Jewish. And got to the airport, and I said, well, I'm a Christian, and in our church tradition, we believe in praying for the sick. May I pray for you right now? And he kind of looked a little puzzled, and he said, 
Okay. So I laid my hands on him and I said, come Holy Spirit. And um, I ministered uh, the love of Christ. And you could see this man. I mean, he, um, he experienced Jesus that day. He put out his hands. I mean, he had no idea what to do. He put out his hands. The Holy Spirit engaged him, kind of leaned back. You could see his whole body relaxing. I prayed for him. I asked that his illness be cured. And uh, I finished. And he gave me a big hug, and he drove away. And the most amazing thing happened. Several months later, I called a lift. The same man came. That's never happened before. Never happened since. He told me, there was a guy I picked up here several months ago. He prayed for me, and I got healed. And I was like... That's me. That was me. <laughs> There's no magic in my hands. I'm just a conduit for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't look for perfect people. He doesn't look for people without sin. He looks for people who are available and will just say, may I pray for you right now? So if I may assign some homework, if you will, uh, can I please ask you, whenever you hear someone this week who says anything about their need, especially physical needs, won't you just say, may I pray for you right now? That man didn't need evangelizing. He felt the power of the Holy Spirit, right? He knew truth uh, when he saw it, when he felt it. So, to land the plane, Jesus models a new humanity for us. Jesus had a unique ability to cut across, to pray for anyone who needed him. He prayed for young and old, rich and poor, famous, not famous. He had a way of including everyone in the new humanity, he said in John 10.10 10, that he came to bring life. He came that we may have life and live it to the full. And the way we do this is one relationship at a time. Amen.